Alrighty. So I'll pray and we'll jump into our study in the book of Revelation. Father, thank you that you have given us the opportunity to dig into your word. Lord, we pray that your spirit will reveal truth to us today. Help us to have our hearts open to receive what you want to give us today. And then to give it out to other people. And we thank you for everything that you're showing us. And I pray that our confidence in you will be increased. And Lord, that we will be more and more bold to share your truth. Knowing that your Bible is supernaturally inspired. It's God-breathed. It's literally written by your Holy Spirit through men. So you are the ultimate author of the Bible. So we just thank you for that. And we just pray that you help us to have confidence in that and to treat it as the wonderful resource that it is. It's a living word. It contains living words. So help us to devour these living words so that we can grow spiritually and learn how to become more Christ-like. You do that work in us, so help us to surrender ourselves to you and allow you to do that work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so this is the Antichrist part 3. Imagine if I told you that in 200 years time, the nation of Australia would conquer the world. There would be a mighty leader who would be in charge of the military in Australia and the Australian military would conquer literally, or basically the entire known world and would rule the world. And then that leader would die and then the empire, the Australian empire, the Australian world empire, would then be split into four smaller kingdoms which were less powerful. What would you call me? So that's basically what Daniel did in the book of Daniel in chapter 2, chapter 7, and now chapter 8 we get more specific. Greece, the Grecian kingdom, was just kind of like a kingdom like Australia. It wasn't that powerful. It wasn't that big. And to make the prediction that Greece would be the world empire in 200 years' time, it could have been any nation. If you think about it, it could have been any nation. But no, it had to be Greece. And the leader had to um, rise to prominence very quickly. He had to be a certain type of man, as shown in the scriptures. So what we're going to do today is look at an amazing event or a series of events that happened in Israel. And these events actually give us a really good picture of the Antichrist. So I just want to explain before we jump in what a type is or a picture. So you're probably aware of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And that gives us a good idea of what the cross is all about when the Heavenly Father sacrificed the Heavenly Son, yeah? So, in Daniel chapter 8, we have a picture of the Antichrist. Not the real Antichrist, but someone who does just about everything the Antichrist does and acts like the Antichrist. Same attitude, 
same desires, all those kind of things. So that's basically where we're going today. And then next week, once we've got this Old Testament understanding of the Antichrist and these end times events and the empire, what we're going to have is actually the Jewish mindset. So remember the Bible is a Jewish book, and we have to understand the Jewish culture. So today is all about explaining the Feast of Hanukkah as part of it. It's kind of something we're doing along the way. And it's also called the Festival of Lights. It's a feast that the Jews celebrate to this day. And so when Jesus, back in the day, he said, watch out for when you see the abomination of desolation, that relates to the feast or the festival of lights, Hanukkah. And so when Jesus says the abomination of desolation, all the Jews would know exactly, straight away, instantly, he's talking about the Antichrist. He's talking about this pre-Antichrist, this type of the Antichrist. Okay, Like Isaac was a type of Christ being sacrificed on the altar there. Well, this Antichrist in the Old Testament we're going to read about is a type of the modern Antichrist. So, before we jump into that though, a quick revision from last week. Why are we doing all this revision? Is because this has got to come off your tongue real quick. Okay, You need to know the order of events. So I'll put the dispensations up, the dispensation chart. So we go f- from after the church age, the age of grace. What's the next event? After the church age, what's the next event? It's called grace on the picture there, age of grace. Tribulation, what happens before the tribulation? The rapture first, yep, and then there's a short time gap. And then what marks the start of the tribulation? How do we know when the tribulation has actually begun and the clock starts ticking that seven years has started to count down? The peace treaty, very good, yeah. So the rapture happens, there's a short gap as the Antichrist does his rise to power. And then the peace treaty with Israel is signed for seven years. It's a seven-year peace treaty. He confirms a covenant, Daniel 9, 27. So basically, the peace treaty marks the start of the tribulation. And how do we know who the Antichrist is? How do we know who the Antichrist is? The guy who confirmed the peace treaty. Okay. All right. Now, what happens at the halfway point? There's lots of things here, so you can call them out. Yep, the angelic war in heaven is one of them. Satan is cast down to earth permanently. He no longer has access to heaven. What else happens? Yes, the Antichrist goes into the temple and defiles the temple and claims or declares himself to be God. What happens to the peace treaty? The peace treaty is broken, and what does the Antichrist do to the Jews? He starts to attack them, to persecute them. And what about all the other believers? What does he try and do with all the other tribulation saints? He tries to force them to take the mark. So the mark is given at this point, and anyone who doesn't take the mark is killed. And all the believers, he makes a 
concerted effort to hunt down and kill the saints. Now, the end of the tribulation, what's that called? Second coming of Christ, very good. And that's basically what the Bible calls the Battle of Armageddon, where Jesus comes back and defeats all his enemies. That's Revelation 19. Something we haven't covered much lately, but something that happens in between the tribulation and the thousand-year millennial reign is the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25. And Satan is bound for a thousand years, and that you find that in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. Then what happens? What's the next dispensation there after the tribulation? A thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Fantastic. At the end of that, what do we have? A satanic rebellion is crushed, so Satan is released. He gathers everyone who doesn't choose to believe in Jesus even though they're living in a perfect world. And they rebel against God with Satan, and that is crushed by God. They sends fire from heaven, they're burnt up. And then after that is the great white throne judgment, which is the judgment of all who? Believers or unbelievers? Unbelievers, good. And then after that we have eternity with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, 22. So last week, Quick summary of what we did last week. The head of gold is Babylon, and in Daniel 7 it was represented by the lion with eagle's wings. Good. The chest and arms, or breast and arms of silver, is which empire? Medo-Persian empire. That's good. And in Daniel 7 it was represented by the, the bear. Yep. Then the the belly and thighs of bronze or brass is Grecian Empire. And in Daniel 7, it was represented by the leopard with four wings. And then the last one on that chart is the two legs of iron, which is Rome. And in Daniel 7, it was represented by the, the horrible beast that no one can describe. So basically... There's our four last kingdoms from the time of Daniel until Jesus comes back. Now, what do the horns represent? Generally speaking in the Bible, when it refers to a horn, it means power. A position of power, something that's powerful. So, the horns represent people, kings, and their representative kingdoms in positions of power. So I'm going to put Revelation 17, 12 to 14 up, and we'll read this together. This is what we did last week. So it says, Revelation 17, 12 to 14, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, and they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Who's the beast? Antichrist. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war, notice these, okay, all at the same time, will make war with the Lamb, Jesus, and the Lamb will overcome them, for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. 
Now, when Jesus comes back, who does he come back with? Us. We are the chosen and faithful. We don't feel like it some days, but that's how God sees us. Isn't that good? Now, which empire do these ten kings come from? The Roman Empire. Awesome. Yep. And do they reign successively or simultaneously? Same time. So simultaneously. And Daniel chapter 7 verse 20, it said, The other horn which came up before which three fell. Who does the other horn represent? The Antichrist. Yep. And the three horns which fell, who are they? Three of the ten kings. Yep. Now, what do the other kings do? The ones that are left. They choose to give their authority to the beast or the Antichrist. And Daniel 7, 21 and 25 says that the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. And then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. So, how long will the tribulation saints be given into the hand of the Antichrist? How long will he be chasing them and killing them? Three and a half years. Is that the first half or last half of the tribulation? Last half. Awesome. Okay, so now we're going to go into Daniel chapter 8. So, here is another diagram. So, this is now the introduction and background to Daniel chapter 8. So we get the big picture and then we'll dive into the stuff about the Antichrist. All right? You need to have the background. It's not much. So here is a new chart for you. And it's got chapter 2, chapter 7, and now we've added chapter 8. So if you go across from the Medo-Persian Empire, you've got the breast and two arms of silver in chapter 2. You've got the bear for chapter 7. But then in chapter 8, the Medo-Persian Empire is represented as a ram. Similarly, the Grecian Empire, represented by the belly and thighs of brass or bronze, in chapter 2, and the leopard in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he's represented as a he-goat, as a male goat. So, God is basically giving us a big picture of the four kingdoms, and it's narrowing down into something that's more specific here. It's going to end up focusing on a time period from 175 to 164 BC towards the end of the Grecian Empire as the Roman Empire is starting to become more powerful. And there's this guy, one of the kings in, from the Grecian Empire, who is going to try to destroy the Jewish nation. He actually does stop the temple worship. And as we're going to learn, God delivers them miraculously and the temple is dedicated miraculously. I'll go into that later. And it's called the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah. And you might have heard that the Maccabeans, Maccabean Revolt, is interesting. All right. So here's the basics. In Daniel 8, 1 to 8, we have the Medo-Persian Empire represented by the ram 
who was then defeated by the Grecian Empire, represented by the goat. So let's have a look at that. It's Daniel 8, 20 and 21. The ram which you saw, having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four horns that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So, let's look at verse 20 first. I'm doing this to give you an idea of just how specific these are. There's not just pictures and things to go, oh, that's interesting. But no, every little detail is important. So, the ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Now, in verse 3, it gives more detail. I'll put that up for you. It's on the screen there. It says, A ram which had two horns, and the horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So, the Medes and the Persians were two different nations, represented by the two horns on this ram, and they worked together to defeat Babylon. Make sense? Follow me so far? Two nations who join together, and together they fight against the Babylonians. Now, I haven't told you this before, but you got the Medes and the Persians, and when they conquered Babylon, one nation was strong and one nation was weak, which was a strong nation. The Medes were strong at the start, but then the Persians became more powerful than the Medes, and they basically took over. So verse 3 says, A ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. So it's very specific. It says that the Persian Empire was weak at the start, but it came up last, and it began to take over this partnership. And just so you know, this is not to do with today, but the Persians, who are the Persians today? What nation do the Persians come from? The nation used to be called Persia. Iran. They're the Iranians, okay? So the Iranians in the Middle East are causing trouble, but they're not Arabs, they're actually Persians. The same people back here who conquered the Babylonians. So they have a very rich history. So they're not Arabs, they're not descended from Ishmael like most of the Middle East are, but they're Persians. So again, I just want to show you how accurate this prophecy is, all prophecy is. The first horn on the ram represents the kingdom of the Medes. They were initially more powerful, but then the Persian nation became more powerful than the Medes and they took over this partnership. Now, look at verses 21 and 22, which tell us more about the Grecian Empire, represented by the male goat. And the male goat is a kingdom of Greece. Tells us what it is, right? The interpretation. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So, we talked about this last week a little bit, about Alexander the Great. The male goat is a kingdom of Greece. 
And the first horn is who? The first most impressive, greatest leader of the Grecian kingdom was Alexander the Great. Most people would say that he was the world's most successful military leader. He conquered the world in a very short time. He was incredibly brave and he seemed unstoppable. But he died young. He was wounded by an arrow and he never recovered. So what happened next? Now Alexander the Great had a son. And if you're a king and if you have a son, what do you do? You hand your kingdom over to your son, right? So 200 years before this event, Daniel prophesied that the kingdom would not be given to his son, but be given to four generals. And guess what happened? The kingdom didn't go to his son. He went to the four generals. And the story goes, they were all crowded around Alexander as he was dying, and they said, who are you going to give your kingdom to? And he said, to the strong. And that was it, and then he died. And so the strong took it, the four generals, and they split the kingdom up into four smaller kingdoms. So the Grecian Empire became four smaller Grecian empires. One to the north, one to the south, one to the east, one to the west. Okay. I'm going to show you another diagram now. The little black country is Israel. And notice that Israel is in the middle of the northern kingdom of Greece and the southern kingdom of Greece. So just have a look at this. This is the northern kingdom of Greece. This is the southern kingdom of Greece. So the southern kingdom includes Egypt, Libya, Sudan, Ethiopia. The northern kingdom includes Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Jordan, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and a couple of other countries there which I can't read. So these two kingdoms were always fighting. So when they were fighting each other, where do you think the battle would be? In the middle where they meet. What country is right in the middle? Israel. Now, you talk about being the meat in the sandwich, right? You've got massive armies coming to fight each other all the time. Israel is only what, 40 k's wide. It's not a big nation. And so every time they fight each other, they come through the country and cause havoc. That's why this stuff's in the Bible, in the book of Daniel and that, because it's not just about countries and stuff. It's not that important, but it concerns Israel. So if it concerns Israel, it gets included. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Now, just as an aside, when Alexander the Great came through, before this was divided up into four kingdoms, Alexander the Great came to Jerusalem. And his goal was to besiege Jerusalem. He was going to destroy it, like he did in the other city or country, right? But the high priest came out, and in his hand was a scroll of the book of Daniel, and he explained to Alexander the Great and interpreted the scriptures to him, and Alexander the Great saw that the Hebrew God 
had predicted his rise to power, and his response was, He fell on his face. He was so stunned by the fact that the Hebrew God had predicted his rise to power that he turned from there and went back and he never bothered Jerusalem. So, even back then, this was very clear. This is very clear. Things were fulfilled exactly how they were written. So, the more we learn about Bible prophecy, the more we should understand that everything is under God's complete control. And we should start to have more and more of this calmness and this assurance in our hearts that no matter what happens, God is looking after us. So now, we're going to learn about this guy who is a type of the Antichrist. So his name is Antiochus Epiphanes. So, He's a type or picture of the future Roman Antichrist who will rule during the seven-year tribulation. So we look at his life, what he did, and Jesus refers to him in the New Testament and says, hey, you want to know what's going to happen? Look back to this guy, and you know what's going to happen. So we're learning what this guy did, so we know what's going to happen. So I'll read it section by section and explain it as we go. So, chapter 8, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now, he's a Babylonian king. So, he's predicting all this before the Medes and Persians have conquered Babylon. So, which kingdom is the ram again? Media and Persia, the first. Yep. So, in chapter 8, the ram is the Medes and Persians. All right. Who ended up being the most powerful nation? The horn that came up last? Was it the Medes or the Persians? The Persians, very good. Okay, now verse 5. As I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. Which kingdom does a goat represent? Grecian Empire, good. And who did they defeat? The Medes Medes and Persians, good. Their empire. And what does it mean by he came from the West? Greece is in the West, he came from the West. He came across the surface of the whole earth. What does that signify? Travel a long way, he was a worldwide empire, yeah? And without touching the ground. Very quickly. Okay. So again, very specific prophecy. Go to verse 8. Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. So who's the large horn again? Alexander the Great. What does it mean when it says the large horn was broken? He died. Who took over the Grecian Empire? Was it his son or someone else? Four generals. And it was split four ways. North, east, south and west. Okay. Go back to our chart. Now, who is the name of the family that ruled the area north of Israel? So can you read the thing there? 
It's a Seleucid family or the Ptolemy family. If you can't read it, the northern kingdom is the Seleucid kingdom and the southern kingdom is the Ptolemy family. So they had this succession of kings from General Ptolemy. He would have his sons and his sons and his sons ruling down here in the southern kingdom. And the Seleucid king, General Seleucid, he would have his sons ruling again and again, one after the other in the northern kingdom. So it's like a family dynasty that goes on. Now, we come to a part in this scripture where it jumps. It's called a historical parenthesis, or like brackets, you know. And so we come to chapter 8, verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So this little horn is not directly descended from one of these first generals in the first generation. He's a long way down the line. Okay, Remember we've been through some prophecies where there's suddenly a big gap? So we've just jumped like 100 years or 150 years. So we've gone almost to the end of the Grecian Empire. Alexander the Great was the start. And this guy was really close to the end of the Grecian Empire. Now in verse 9 it talks about the glorious land. Who do you think that represents? Israel. That's it. And now it says the little horn. So this is not the real Antichrist, the, the Roman Antichrist, because this little horn comes from which kingdom? Greece. So he's not the actual Antichrist. He's a type or a picture of the real Antichrist. And we go back in history and we figure out who this guy is, and his name is Antiochus IV. Okay? And he changed his name to Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, what do we know about this king? Well, Antiochus IV, he's from the Seleucid dynasty. He's the northern kingdom. He's gained his throne, or the throne of his father, Antiochus III, by murdering his brother. <laughs> his brother's son was the rightful heir to the throne, but Antiochus IV held him hostage in Rome. And the Roman Empire was increasing in power at that stage. And... Like the future Antichrist, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, achieved his rule through flattery and bribery. So, would you like to have this guy as your king? <laughs> now, Antiochus IV assumed the title Epiphanes, and it means illustrious and alludes to deity. I say, he's, I'm Antiochus the illustrious. Worship me. The Jews changed his name or twisted his name into Epimanes, meaning madman. So if you were a Jew living at this time, you would call this guy Antiochus Epimanes. Antiochus the madman. That was his nickname for in, with the Jews. And guess what? <laughs> People will see the Antichrist in the same way eventually. Okay. So this does not put him in a very good light. Now, who would like to go down in history as a great representation of the Antichrist? Now, we're going to see what this guy does to the Jews. It's very similar to what the future Roman Antichrist will do to the nation of Israel during the Tribulation. So verses 10 to 12. And it, the little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, grew up to the host of heaven 
and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground. That's the people of the nation of Israel. And trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as a prince of the host. That's Jesus. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and he prospered. Now, does that sound similar to what the Antichrist does? It's very similar. So we just go through that. Okay, verse 10. The little horn grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some to the ground and trampled them. So this is a way of saying that this wicked king killed and persecuted the people of Israel. And we'll find out later he killed over 100,000 Jews. He even exalted himself as high as a prince of the host. Now, if the host refers to Israel, I've got the verses in your notes there, but I won't read them now. Then the prince of the host is Jesus. Antiochus Epiphanes blasphemed God and commanded that idolatrous worship be directed toward himself, just like the future Roman Antichrist will do. In verse 11 it says, And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. Antiochus Epiphanes will put an end to the temple sacrifices in Jerusalem, just like the future Roman Antichrist will do at the midpoint of the tribulation. And the place of his sanctuary was cast down, and that just means he desecrated the temple. Just like the future Roman Antichrist will at the midpoint of the tribulation. We'll find out more how we did that in a minute. And he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. So, just like the Roman Antichrist seems to get away with all this, he's given complete freedom to hunt down people and kill them. Antiochus Epiphanes, he opposes God and he seemed to prosper. But, <laughs> what did the scriptures say in Revelation? When the time came, what happened to the Antichrist? He was destroyed. And it says that too here. He will be destroyed, and not by human hands. And in verse 10 it says that he trampled them. So I'm going to give a quote here to explain what he did. Antiochus was an infamous persecutor of the Jewish people. He wanted them to submit to Greek culture and customs and was more than willing to use murder and violence to compel them. By some estimates, he was responsible for the murder of over 100,000 Jews. Antiochus' suppression of the Jews came to a head in December of 168 BC when he returned from defeat from Alexandria. He ordered his generals to seize Jerusalem on a Sabbath. So he's really angry. He's been defeated by the southern kingdom of Greece. And he comes in on a Sabbath. That's a Saturday. And his generals seize Jerusalem. And then he goes into the temple and puts an altar of Zeus in the Holy of Holies. And he desecrates the altar by offering a pig on the altar. And then he sprinkles the blood throughout the temple. And because the temple was desecrated, the sacrifice had to stop. And if you're interested, you can read the books of First Maccabees, and it's in your notes where to find it. They're not inspired, but they are historical. 
Okay, so you can find out what happened. Again, this reminds us of the Antichrist, what he's going to do in the future temple. How do we know? Well, Second Thessalonians 2, 3-4. This is talking about the future Antichrist. Look how similar it is. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the tribulation, will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's what the scriptures say about the second Antichrist. Right, verse 12, it says, because of transgression. Now this is interesting. Why is God going to judge the world with the tribulation? Because of their rebellion against God? He's going to judge the world because of the world's rebellion against God, right? Well, the reason that God allows this Antiochus Epiphanes to stop temple worship and to kill all these Jews is because of transgression. It's their own transgression. It's the Jews. The Jews were corrupt at this point. They were very corrupt, especially the priests. And therefore, God judged Israel for their apostasy and wickedness, their transgression. And Antiochus Epiphanes and his army were just his tools, his vehicle, the vehicle God used to bring judgment on the wayward and apostate nation of Israel. So um, another quote to show how bad things were in the nation of Israel. The first attack of Antiochus against the Jews of this time was to settle a rivalry for the office of high priest. A pious or godly high priest, Aeneas III, was removed from office and was replaced with his brother Jason because Jason bribed Antiochus. <laughs> so remember Antiochus is the king over this area and that area includes Israel. Israel is part of that northern Grecian kingdom at the moment. Then, in 172 BC, another brother, Menelaus, gave Antiochus a bigger bribe, and he replaced Jason as the high priest. Now, a year later, Menelaus started selling many of the temple's gold utensils. <laughs> That's pretty blasphemous, isn't it? To raise money to pay off the bribe. Aeneas III rebuked him. This is a good priest, right? He was kicked out. And Menelaus had him murdered. Nice guy. All right. Meanwhile, Jason, the first one who had, you know, paid a bribe, and, but it wasn't big enough, he got this army together and fought against Menelaus to regain the office of the high priest. So there's this infighting going on in Jerusalem about who's going to be the high priest. And then Antiochus Epiphanes came to Jerusalem 171 BC, like a year later, to defend the man who paid him the biggest bribe. You see what's going on? This is a horrible situation. <laughs> it sounds like American politics. <laughs> All right. Keep in mind that Israel is not independent. They pay taxes to and are subject to the northern Grecian kingdom. And so basically what is happening is the rightful high priest is kicked out and this other guy who bribed the king gets to be high priest. Then another guy, another priest, gives a bigger bribe and he takes over being high priest and then they start fighting and Antiochus comes. 
So what's happening so far is that this king, Antiochus Epiphanes, comes onto the scene. He murders, flatters, and bribes his way to power. He then tries to force Grecian culture, which included the worship of other gods, on the nation of Israel. He then helps corrupt the priesthood by giving the position of high priest to the highest bidder. Remember that the high priest had great authority over the Jews. And later on, he then attacks Israel and desecrates the temple by sacrificing a pig and stopping the regular temple animal sacrifices. Now, the next bit. The angels tell Daniel exactly how long the temple will be defiled. So, again, imagine if I was saying, right at the start I said, if Australia was going to be the conquering nation that conquered the entire world, and they would stop the worship of yeah, the Muslim worship. No more Muslim worship. Okay, just is just a hypothetical situation, and that would stop for two thousand three hundred mornings and evenings. <laughs> you say, how do you know that? You know that's impossible to predict. This is what's happening here. Then I heard a holy one speaking. This is Daniel eight thirteen to fourteen, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, "How long will the vision be?" concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. So, here in verse 13, we have the transgression of desolation. Matthew 24:15. Jesus calls this the abomination of desolation. So, if you're a Jew you know exactly what Jesus is talking about because this is a part of your history. Jesus told them, so watch out for the abomination of desolation that would happen halfway through the tribulation. When it happens, run. It's already happened once, it's going to happen again. This time during the seven-year tribulation. Now, for 2,300 days, now literally in the Hebrew, it's not the word yom for day, it's mornings and evenings. It's 2,000 300 mornings and evenings and the context is the daily offerings right so what the jews would do they'd offer a lamb in the morning and the lamb in the evening every single day that was a basic routine so every day there would be how many offerings two so there's 2300 mornings and evenings 2300 morning and evening sacrifices so how many days does it make it? Half that, okay? Very good. So you're following. That's awesome. So 1,150 days. So remember, this has nothing to do with the book of Revelation. This is a historical event that parallels what will happen in the future. Now, guess what? If you go back in history, you will find that this is the exact amount of time that the temple was desecrated that the temple worship was stopped. It was stopped for 1,150 days or 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices weren't offered. Now, history tells us that this was called the Maccabean Tribulation. Interesting name. And it lasted from 168 to 165 BC. It's just over three years. Now, do you know what happened? I'm not going to go into the history now, but it's worth reading. It's called the Maccabean Revolution. In 165 BC, Judas Maccabeus, against all odds, with his very small army, 
under-equipped. Remember, just a small nation of Israel, poor, subject to the northern kingdom of Greece there. He defeated the powerful armies of Antiochus Epiphanes. Over three years, using guerrilla warfare, hit and run, he defeated this massive army. And when they were defeated and kicked out of Jerusalem, they were able to restore temple worship exactly 1,150 days after it was stopped. Now, think about this. This is over 350 years after Daniel wrote the prophecy. When Daniel was given this revelation, Greece was just a country like Australia, presented no threat to anybody. How could Daniel know that all these things would happen as they did? It's just God. It has to be God. So we sung a song, How Great Is Our God. We should be amazed at how great our God is, that he's given us all this revelation, revealing the end from the beginning. Now, the story continues on. When they went to light the menorah, they found they only had oil for one day. And it takes two weeks to prepare and consecrate and set apart the oil for the menorah to burn in the temple. And the menorah must be kept burning. If it goes out, can't use the temple, right? So the miracle is that they only had oil for one day, but God kept the menorah, the candle in the temple, burning for two weeks. For two weeks. So oil for one day, but it burnt for two weeks. And the Jews look back at this, and they remember the Maccabean revolt, when they defeated the armies of the northern Grecian kingdom. They remember the two weeks that the menorah burnt with no oil being provided. And they call it Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights. And even Jesus celebrated this. So, a couple of questions for you for a bit of revision. How long were the temporal sacrifices stopped for? Good. Exactly 1,150 days after it was stopped. Which corresponds to how many evening morning sacrifices? 2,300. Fantastic. Now, what nationality was Antiochus Epiphanes? Greek. Very good. And what altar did he set up in the temple of God? Idol of Zeus. Now, if you read in Thessalonians, which you did before, what altar does the real Antichrist set up in the temple of God, the future temple? His own image of himself. There's a slight difference there. Now, how did he desecrate the temple and the altar? Sacrifice to pig, yeah. Now, why did God allow this evil king, this little horn, this picture of the Antichrist, to murder and oppress the nation of Israel? Because of their sin, their transgression. Okay, They didn't care about God at all. They just wanted the power of being in those priestly positions. What's it called when an event happens that helps us to understand a similar future event? A type or a picture? Very good. Okay, and what is Antiochus Epiphanes a picture or type of? The Roman Antichrist, the future Roman Antichrist. Now we come to the angelic interpretation 
of this vision. And what the angel does is he links this to the end times. So we're going to go to Daniel chapter 8, verse 17, and then 19 to 26. So I'm just going to read it through, and then we'll talk about it. So he came near where I stood. This is the angel Gabriel. You've heard of Gabriel? And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. And so you should be. And he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. And he said, Look, I am making known to you what will happen in the latter time of the indignation. What do you think that means? The latter time. The tribulation. The latter time of the indignation. It's a tribulation. The time of wrath. At the appointed time, the end shall be. Jesus comes back. Verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. So notice, this is the character of the Antichrist coming through now, and his methods. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity, or in their peace, by peace. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, it's Jesus. But he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evening mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. So let's just go back to verse 17. It says the vision refers to the time of the end, or the later time of indignation. What's that again? Tribulation. So this is applying what's happened here. This is a purposeful type, okay, or picture. It's applying it and saying this is what's going to happen in the end. The seven-year tribulation. In verse 23, it says, And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features who understands sinister schemes. So, and in the latter time of their kingdom. So this reads true for both Antiochus and the Roman Antichrist. Now, this is an example of a prophetic passage that has a near and far fulfillment, like a double fulfillment. It has a fulfillment in the near future, and it has a fulfillment in the distant future. So that's called a near and far fulfillment. A king shall arise. He's a powerful leader. Having fierce features. Antiochus, Epiphanes, and the Antichrist will be known for their cruel brutality. He's going to be brutal. He's going to be cruel. Who understands sinister schemes through cunning. So, flattery. He's going to deceive people. And the coming Antichrist will do that as well. He's going to make this covenant with Israel, but he's going to break it. He's going to deceive them. Verse 24, it says, His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. That's interesting. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty, and also the holy people. So here we go. He shall be mighty, but not by his own power. 
Who was Antiochus Epiphanes empowered by? Satan. Yeah. Who's the enemy of the Jews? We've learned about this in previous weeks. Who's got it out for the Jews? Satan. He should be mighty, but not by his own power. And the same thing with the Antichrist, the Roman Antichrist. He'll be empowered, strengthened, raised up by Satan. It says in verse 24, also he shall prosper and thrive. So Antiochus Epiphanes looked like a total success until Jesus comes back. And in the case of Antiochus Epiphanes, he died of sickness. God said, that's it for you, and he died. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people, also in verse 24. So Antiochus Epiphanes not only destroyed his enemies, but also he harshly persecuted the people of God, just like the Antichrist we know will persecute the Jewish people in the future. Jesus said, run. And verse 25, through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule and shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. So, the first phrase there, he shall cause deceit to prosper. Their rules are marked by deceit. There's no honesty in them. What is Satan called? The father of lies. And we can read that in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. It says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because I did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The ultimate deception is that of salvation. It's deceiving them so they don't receive the love of the truth verse 25 it also says he shall exalt himself in his heart now this Antiochus Epiphanes minted coins he made coins and on those coins it says God manifests can you imagine someone so crazy that they would mint coins which said basically here I am I'm God but that's him. What about Second Thessalonians 2.4? So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing that he himself is God. As God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So again, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Roman Antichrist will have the same thing. They want to be worshipped as God. Now, verse 25, in their prosperity, it means by means of peace. So how is this Antichrist going to come to power? By war or by peace? It's by peace. Okay, He's going to promise peace. He's going to use peace as a tool to manipulate. You need to do this, or there's not going to be peace. And people just capitulate and do whatever they can to keep the peace. And that's happening in today's world as we speak. He shall even rise against the Prince of Princes. So, who is Antiochus Epiphanes really fighting? Is it the Jews or the God of the Jews? It's the God of the Jews, isn't it? Okay, it's Jesus. Then it says, verse 25, broken about human means. So history tells us that Antiochus Epiphanes died of disease, not by the hand of any man. 
In a similar way, no man will defeat the Antichrist, the coming Antichrist. Who's going to kill him? Jesus. He will destroy his body and throw it into the fire. And then in verse 26, And the vision of the evening and mornings, which was told is true. Daniel's hearing this stuff and he's going, man, this is weird. I mean, if you're hearing this, you're going, this is weird. I don't understand this. But the angel confirms that this is true. Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to when? Many days in the future. So it says seal up the vision. So Daniel did this because at the time, Jesus hadn't come back for the first time. Everything's a bit muddy. But once Jesus has come back, we're living in the last days. And it's especially true for us, given that many of the prophecies for the latter part of the last days are coming true. So I'm going to put this up. This is our revision for what we just did. And I want you to put in the missing word. So are you ready? Have a look at the screen. Don't look at your notes. It's naughty, naughty. No notes. Okay. Have a look up here. Just as Antiochus Epiphanes rose to power with force and intrigue, so will the Antichrist. As he persecuted the Jews, so will the Antichrist. As he stopped sacrifice and desecrated the temple, so will the Antichrist. As he seemed to be a complete success, so will the Antichrist. From what Antiochus did to the Jews in his day, Therefore, we can know the general pattern of what the Antichrist will do to them in the future. Make sense? We have this type. Now, application to close. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24.4 when people asked him about end times events? The first thing he said was, Take heed that no one deceives you. So the end times and the teaching of end times doctrine is going to be marked with deception. And I just want to close by illustrating one major deception that has kept many in bondage, especially many of the cults. And it's this what we've read today. It's this 2,300 evenings and mornings. So listen carefully, this is important. As you learn today, its context is easy to see. Why? Because it's already been literally fulfilled. The temple was literally stopped for 1,150 days or 2,300 evening morning sacrifices. True? Yeah? You can go back and you check it out for yourself. Unfortunately, this very clear and easy to understand passage has been, or prophecy, has been used to deceive millions, and it's worth pointing this out so you can help others. So here's a quote from David Guzik, which explains it. You can read along with me. This passage has been a favorite springboard for elaborate and fanciful prophetic interpretations. A popular and tragic interpretation of this passage took one year for every day. So instead of morning and evenings, they said it's a day and it can be a year. And William Miller used 2,300 year days to calculate that Jesus will return in 1844. And that's based on 2,300 years after Cyrus issued the decree to rebuild the temple. And his movement ended up giving birth to the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and several other movements or cults. 
Now, we can know that Miller and the other year-day theories are wrong because the passage was fulfilled already. It's already fulfilled. Before the time of Jesus. Jesus recognized that the temple was properly cleansed and rededicated when he attended the Feast of Dedication. That's the Festival of Lights on Hanukkah. Commemorating the cleansing and rededication of the temple after the desecration brought by Antiochus Epiphanes. And you'll find that in John 10, verse 22. Now, a question for you. What is another way that we can know that William Miller was wrong in his offbeat interpretation of the 2,300 evening warnings when he prophesied that Jesus would come back in 1844? How do we know that he was wrong? (laughs) It's very easy, right? He didn't come back. If that's so easy to figure out, why do people still believe it? Okay? It's a spiritual battle. Consider the bondage that this tragic misinterpretation of Scripture, this allegoric interpretation of Scripture, has caused. Even today, the cults promote this so-called prophecy to draw ignorant individuals into their webs. And the main problem is that it leads to other false doctrines and teachings. Again, remember what Jesus said when asked about end times? Take heed that no one deceives you. So, um imploring you, become educated yourselves so that you can know the truth and you can help others to be free from this deception. And finally, just remember that if anyone asks you why you think the Bible is inspired or supernatural or asks for proof that God exists, think of prophecy. There is no good argument against biblical prophecy and I pray that you'll be encouraged in your faith. So Father, I thank you for what we've learned today. Lord, The dealings with your people were predicted to the very last detail. And today, the Jews remember this event called Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. And they rejoice in your redemption, Lord, the way you saved the people of Israel back then. And Lord, we look ahead and we know that the people of Israel are going to be chased and hunted down. But we also know that you're going to protect them and you're going to come back and you're going to, again, redeem them and protect them. So Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for the accuracy of your word. We thank you that we know that there is a God because you have revealed yourself by writing down the future in the past before it happens. So we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your grace toward us. We thank you that we can have this now and we can understand it. Lord, give us hearts that Weep and cry for those who have been deceived and help us to make every effort to go to them and help them to see the truth, Lord. Help us to take the time and make the effort to learn this for ourselves so that we can be good ambassadors for Christ and prevent and reverse the deception that is going on in the world today with many people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.